It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Plane. I'm right. not going to have you go visit your, your boyfriend. boyfriend. It's right. going to damage the kids. So he already knew what was going on. Jesse Weber, thank you. Appreciate it. That does it for us tonight. Thanks for watching. Banfield starts now. It is Tuesday, which is the day after Monday, which is the day after the weekend. Hopefully, you've still got your weekend glow. Uh, it's really nice to have you here tonight. We've got a bunch of really great stories to tell you. First one, though, is a bit of a nostalgia uh, kick in the gut because I was such a huge fan of the 2009 Oscar-winning movie, The Blind Side. And I know you've probably heard that, oh, dear, uh, maybe it wasn't exactly like the movie. They never are. Come on. But. There's some really interesting little developments that happened today. So the big football player in the blind side, uh, adopted by this family, and then, you know, plays an old miss, and then goes on to earn, like, millions in the NFL. Only he's just recently come out to say, ah, they never adopted me. I didn't know. I thought they adopted me. Instead, they made me sign conservatorship papers that I didn't even know. I only just learned at age 37. Do what now? That part was weird, but okay, except for this. The family has come back to say, hold your horses. That is not the full story. And there is more to this. So there's a whole lawsuit and there's a family football throwdown going on. So I'm going to tell you all about the family's uh, reaction. Also going to talk about uh, with an expert who's just literally written the book on conservatorship. How would this have happened exactly? He's 18 years old, and they get him to sign papers to be in a conservatorship, and it's 20 years before he figures it out. So she's going to walk us all through this. Diane Diamond, great friend of mine, really good author, broke the Michael Jackson story, by the way. So she's going to be on in a hot minute. Um, then I'm also going to find out about the money. How much money did the blind side make? How much likely would the family have made? How much likely is this football player uh, going to get? Maybe, if he prevails. Michael Orr, you probably know his name. Um, if you didn't, you do now. I love that movie. I'm, gonna, I'm totally going to watch it again now. I'm 100%. I think you are too, uh, just so that we have it all in our head. All right. So then also, you know this Long Island serial killer suspect? We've been talking a lot about it, development here and there, dribs and drabs and all this business. And then suddenly we are informed that he's no longer on suicide watch. Okay, but it took a while for them to tell us that. A little interesting, that. Uh, and then there's this other business about serial killers in your neighborhood and how to spot them. This is not a joke. There's actually data, science, metrics, algorithms, and we've got the guy who actually does it. Plus, he's got this sort of bizarre connection between 9-11 and American serial killers. I know. I didn't believe it either, but you're going to hear it in a moment. Uh, then also, the mom of five in Maryland... The hiker, I mean, she went out for a run, right, on a Saturday evening at 6 o'clock. Beautiful mama five doesn't come back. They find her body the next day. There's all sorts of stories about how 
terribly disfigured it was, found naked. Police are saying the guy who says these things may not know what he's talking about. Nonetheless, what exactly are the police investigators supposed to do with this? It's almost like if a tree falls in the forest, what, you know, what do you, how do you solve a crime when you don't have ring cams, when you don't have plate license plate readers, when you don't have phone transactions or credit cards or any of the, the usual stuff, the tools that investigators use? This happened in the wild. And it seems, it seems as though investigators are stumped. We're going to talk about that in a hot moment. First, though, uh, let, let's go to the Michael Orr and the Sean and Leanne Tui story. So Sean and Leanne Tui, uh, well, Leanne would be the Sandra Bullock character in The Blind Side. And Sean and Leanne and their two kids, uh, the story goes, adopt this down and out kid uh, who is a hell of a football player. And then they kind of guide him along through this incredible career at Ole Miss P.S. They're big boosters of Ole Miss, and that was all controversial. And then he goes on to be like a, I think, three hundred million dollar earner in the NFL, Super Bowl winner. I'm not a big football uh, fan, but I'll tell you this: he played for the Baltimore Ravens, he played for the Tennessee Titans, he played for the Carolina Panthers, and he won a Super Bowl. My husband told me it was with the Baltimore Ravens. So he had a very successful career, and now at 37 years old, he's come out with a lawsuit. A couple of days within the time his book is launching. Remember that part. We'll discuss it in a minute. So he, he, he releases a book and then throws down the lawsuit saying that those parents that said they were adopting me weren't adopting me at all. And I just learned that it was conservatorship papers. They told me it was adoption papers. And 20 years later, I'm only just learning it now. I'm still very confused about the process. So I've got some experts who are going to help me figure out whether that's plausible Logical or real and awful. All, maybe it's everything. But it's quite a deal. Uh, he says, I was 18 years old. They say, because you were 18, we couldn't adopt you. So we did the conservatorship to appease the, NF, uh, to, to appease the NCAA. They were giving us all sorts of grief about you being our kid and, and heading off to Ole Miss where we're big boosters. It's a big story there. So Michael Orr, the football player, only released this statement. He's not talking because I have so many questions for him. He said this, I am disheartened by the revelation shared in the lawsuit today. Uh, this is a difficult situation for my family and me. I want everyone, I want to ask everybody to please respect our privacy at this time. For now, I'll let the lawsuit speak for itself and I'll offer no further comment. Well, the Tuies hired a big time lawyer named Marty Singer, big Hollywood lawyer, told TMZ Sports that they were actually the subject of a shakedown before the lawsuit actually dropped. This is what they said. Um, Marty Singer said to TMZ Sports, before Michael made his, quote, hurtful and absurd claims in the petition, um, he demanded that the couple fork over $15 million. Otherwise, he'd plant a negative story about them in the press. Eee. So he also, the lawyer for the Tuies. Uh, Marty Singer says that, that the Tuies did not trick Michael into a conservatorship, that it was established in order to help with his admissions into University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, um, and that this was all just the, the plan so that he could actually go ahead with, you know, moving on in his, in his college football career and then on to great things. So the person who can help me with this is Diane Diamond. First of all, I love her. Second of all, I love her. Third of all, I love her a lot. We worked together at Court TV. She's brilliant. She's an investigative genius. She broke the Michael Jackson story. She's now written the book on conservatorships. She's live with me now. All right, Diane Diamond. Um, 
I, you're the first person I thought of when this story about the conservatorship came out because you're literally just dropping your book about it. What do you take? Like, what's your take on all of this? I, my head is completely muddled with this. I mean, here we are once again talking about a controversial uh, conservatorship. It was Brittany not long ago, now this one. I don't know what to think yet because everything is coming out in dribs and drabs and in torrents of information. You just told me something that's fascinating. Michael Orr has a book coming out and then this big scandal yep. erupts to call attention to his book. Yep. That makes me a little suspicious. Look, I'm not an expertise on adoption law. Uh, I don't have any expertise in that. But I looked a quick Google check and it said that, yes, you can adopt someone who's over 18 years old in the state of Tennessee. So was are the Tuies lying that they were told that? Or did a lawyer just tell them, oh, yeah, well, you can't adopt them. Go for conservatorship because that's where Here's lawyers make a lot of money. <laughs> so here's what they said about the lawyer. This is Sean Tui, and this is a quote from him. Um, he says uh -huh. that the conservatorship was, uh, was entered into after age 18. Uh, we contacted lawyers. This is his quote. We contacted lawyers who had told us that we couldn't adopt over the age of 18, mm -hmm. the only thing we could do was to have a conservatorship. But here's the question I have for you. This is 20 years ago, for heaven's sake. And, I mean, I'm guessing that, that Michael Orr, in his life, and his careers, he's done all these contracts at the NFL, he got married, that's a contract, that's a legal document. How do you only figure out now that you're not adopted by the family and that you're in a conservatorship? Because I thought, and you tell me, that you actually can't do a whole bunch of stuff like these things if you're in a conservatorship. So how is he only just figuring out now that he's in a conservatorship? Exactly. Look, let's look at the Britney Spears thing. When you go to court and you are declared a ward of the court, you are declared incapacitated. I write about this in my book. And as such, all your civil rights are gone. You can't hire a lawyer. You can't get married. You can't have kids. You can't vote. You can't yeah. do any of those things. And Michael Orr has signed a deal with the NFL. Those things. Sign, sign three, <laughs> three deals at the yes. NFL. Big fat contracts. For, let me deal. let me repeat it. Three hundred and thirty-four million dollars. <laughs> wow. Well, and so uh, okay, but on the other hand, the two we say they were trying. He was trying to shake them down for fifteen million. Well, if he earned that much in the NFL and they have multi-million dollar, uh, a multi-million dollar estate, then they're two very rich people who are just arguing over what? They're, they're both full of money. It seems weird. They're both money makers. I don't get it. it there's something more here, Ashley, that we just don't know yet. I think that's it. I think you're absolutely right. There's, yeah. there's, uh, I smell a rat and I don't know who's uh, <laughs> wrong, but they have said... They have said if he wants out of the conservatorship, it, just say the word. So he's still in it. And that's the part well, I, I can't sort of wrap my head around. And if he's still in it, then they would have had a say. They would have had final approval on all those contracts he signed for the book, the NFL, his marriage contract, all of that. And I don't see that they inserted themselves into that. Um, look. I don't know what's going to happen with this. It's not going to go away, especially with Marty Singer as their attorney, because he is a pit bull. I used to get letters from him to cease and desist on stories I was doing, and he's not going to let go. So I, I hope Michael Orr has yeah, a as one. diligent an attorney. Yeah. 
Can I ask you this, you know, because you you know more about the Britney Spears conservatorship than arguably anybody out there. How many years have you been researching this book, by the way, like four or five or so? Oh, no, eight. I've been I've been investigating and writing about it for 2015. Yeah. Okay. took me a while. So this is this is this is the question I have for you with regard to Mm -hmm. what Michael Orr alleges. He says they forced me into this at age 18. They made me sign documents. They told me it was an adoption, but what court would have approved it? What judge would have said, all oh, this is fine? He wasn't mentally incapacitated. They allege that he was right. a little slower, but what judge would have said, this all looks on the up and up, good to go? Well, remember that a guardianship, or it's called conservatorship in Tennessee, guardians are the ones who take care of someone's personal things, where they live, the doctors they see, their education, stuff like that. Conservators are appointed for financial reasons. So what court in Tennessee did this? Certainly not a family court. I mean, usually these kind of uh, proceedings are held in equity courts, and the short answer on that is an equity court judge can do anything they want. They're, they're really not bound by the rules oh. of a civil court or a criminal court. They, it's just like, hey, whatever, you know, floats my boat, that's what I'm going to do. Honestly. Well, there's rumors that this is worth, you know, $300 million. So it's not a small potato story if he's suing for back end mm-hmm. on that movie and rights, et cetera, and maybe even punitive. So, Diane, I'm going to stop our conversation here and move on to the financial with the entertainment lawyer. But thank you, my friend. Oh, great and good talking luck to you, with the book. When's it, when is it, when's it dropping? This is, the book is called When Guardianship Goes Wrong. When does it drop? It drops on September 19th, but it's available for pre-order if you're interested online. Well, there you go. It's my brother's birthday, Thanks, so my I'm friend. not going to forget. Thank you, my dear. I appreciate it. Ooh. Diane Diamond. Always love talking to Diane. She's just oh, she's in the know. She's in the know. So I told you about the money, right? Follow the money. That's what Diane was taught as a young, budding, you know, cub reporter. It's what I was taught. Always follow the money. So Dominic Romano knows how to follow the money in an entertainment story because Dominic Romano is a corporate and entertainment attorney. He's also the big honcho at his own uh, partner. He's a partner and founder of, of Romano Law. So Dominic, when they talk about the blind side uh, being worth several hundred million dollars, can you talk me through why Michael Orr says that the family and the children, the other children in the family, got paid buckets of money, upwards of millions each, and he got nothing. How does that sound to you? Does it sound like they could have orchestrated a deal like that? No, it's highly unlikely. The budget of the movie is around, I think, $29 million. It did gross $300 million, but the subjects of the film, the people portrayed in the film, typically only receive a small fraction of that. Michael Luz, the, the writer would have had to, basically, they would have had to option his life rights, so they paid the writer some money. And, and he, according to the Tuis, the according to Sean Tui, gave the family some money. But we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars split amongst five people. We're not talking about millions. Very little of that $300 million in gross receipts goes to the subjects of a film. In Hollywood accounting, it's a very small percentage. And we talk about profits, it's net profits. It's a very small, relatively small amount of money compared to the whole figure that you're referring to. So we have here, this is a sad story. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you probably right away as a lawyer also follow the money. And the book was dropped, I believe, on the same day. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did Michael Orr's book drop on the same day the lawsuit did? 
It dropped on Friday. The book came out on Friday. The lawsuit comes out on Monday. Interesting timing. Okay. Now, Marty Singer is saying, look, look, this is not the first time he's, he's found out about this conservatorship. He knew in 2020, he knew in 21, according to, uh, according to his brother, the, uh, the son, the, the, the birth son of, of the Tuies. And, and according to Marty Singer, he's tried to shake down the family for $15 million. Now, you know, I have some friends, some lawyers I've been texting with about the story, my EO lawyers this afternoon. And one of them made an interesting point. It, it's interesting that a man who had a long NFL career, presumably had sophisticated agents, managers, uh, attorneys, is only coming to the realization that he signed a conservatorship the, the business day after his book comes out. One wonders about the timing of that. It's a battle of millionaires, as you pointed out before. <laughs> it's a sad story, though. Money getting in the, the way of, of family. Light way of saying... That's a polite way of saying BS. Um, <laughs> right. So now I just wanted to ask you about life rights because, you know, people talk about um, net profits, uh, box office receipts, mm -hmm. life rights, back end. And it's kind of Greek to people who aren't in your business. What does it all mean when it comes to what those people deserve for their stories to be told and what the movie would actually pay versus what the movie makes? Great question. It takes a lot of people to make a film. And so if you Google what are life rights, you're going to see that basically those are the rights of the subject, the person who the, the movie is about, uh, image and, and likeness, being granted to the filmmaker so that they may make a dramatization. Now, it's important to remember that it's a dramatization, right? It's based on a true story. It's not the actual true story. So there are certain artistic liberties that are taken. But then there are directors, actors get paid a, a ton of money. Um, the people, hair and makeup, there, there are hundreds of people on a film set. So when you talk, and there are producers that, that invested the risk capital in the first place in order for the film to be made. So when you're talking about the subjects, you're talking about a very small subsection of the entire whole of the picture. They're only making typically uh, maybe two and a half percent of the direct going in budget. If there's no author, then there are screenwriters and there are other participants. So when you talk about net, uh, at the end of the day, very, a very small amount of that big number goes to the actual subjects of the movie, the people who the movie's about. So you know, I used to, as a kid, see the little tagline saying, inspired by true events. And I would let out a big sigh and feel very inspired that I'm seeing something that's true. And it's actually pretty clever. It's a clever way of saying, eh, we take liberty because we want to entertain you more than we want to teach you. So I, I figured that's always one of those very important lines that, you know, the rest of us just think is really exciting. Hey, Dominic, thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. Great to be here, Ashley. Dominic Romano joining us live tonight. Okay, so uh, we're going to watch that and see what, you know, shoe drops later. I hate it when families squabble, but this one's like a multi-million dollar battle of wits. Uh, I can just see him like, was he a linebacker? I don't even know what his position was, but I can see that being pretty ugly. Okay, coming up. The, I always am worried about serial killers. Don't ask me why. I always assume it's not in my backyard. But there is a guy who actually has a metric on figuring out just how many serial killers are out there at any given time. And let me just tell you this, it's not the same as the estimate that the FBI gives. FBI says it's, ooh, 25 to 50. That's a lot to me. This guy's estimate? 
you're not going to like what you're going to hear. But he is going to tell you how to watch your neighborhood and how to cluster and how to use data and computer codes to really zone in and home in on where they might be active. That's next. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Okay, uh, this week in serial killers, uh, I've got a lot of news, actually. So, first of all, Rex Hewerman, who is the suspect in the Long Island serial killings, not on Suicide Watch anymore, and it turns out it's been about 12 days, but we're just finding out about it now. That's odd. He was arrested July 13th. Uh... And he was just removed August 3rd. So 12 days ago is August 3rd, and I guess he's okay. But they do say he's under strict observation and under high security protocols. Probably because when you have a serial killer, uh, you can make a name for yourself when you're in the big house by taking one out. So that's maybe why. Maybe he's even in segregation because he's so high profile at this point. Don't know. Uh, and that's all alleged, right? Innocent till proven guilty. He's an alleged serial killer at this time. So there's a lot that's going on, though. Uh, We're told that he has had no visitors. That means no wife, no kids, nobody. That's upsetting for him, I'm sure. And at this time, his wife, Aza Elarap, that's her name, Aza Elarap, she is dealing with a cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment. And her insurance depends on him and his architecture firm. Apparently, she's only got a couple weeks left of, of, of cancer treatment. Then there's all this business about the possibility there's a second serial killer operating in the Long Island area. I know, I know, it's a big leap. Um, but there are profilers who say that um, the bodies, the other bodies, do not match the profile of the bodies that are uh, associated with Rex Hewerman. So that's interesting. Um, it's also possible there's some suggestions there could be more than 40 victims of serial killers out in Long Island. Eek! I want to bring in the attorney for um, Azal or Robert Macedonia. He's been uh, a, a friend of the show. He's been a guest on the a program before. Robert, thanks for coming back. I was very surprised. Maybe I shouldn't be, but I was very surprised to, to learn that Aza and the kids have not visited uh, Rex Hewerman. Do they think he's guilty? Is that why they don't want to uh, be associated or, or visit him? No, that has nothing to do with it. They are really just putting the pieces of their life back together. They moved back in about two, two weeks ago, and I think I previously stated the house is in such disarray. They're just honestly going through boxes and piles of debris um, and trying to get their lives back in order. So that hasn't. They spoken by telephone. Have they talked to them by phone? They spoken to by telephone at least a couple times a week. So they have, and, and they operate they, off does, of one cell Does Aza stand by him? Does Aza stand by him? 
she, she hasn't even begun to address all the allegations that are out there. The only thing that Asa knows about this case has been reported in the media. Um, we haven't seen any of the evidence. We haven't been shown anything. You know, I have spoken to um, Rex's attorney, and I don't think he's received a lot of the evidence either. So at this point, the only thing she knows about the case is what's reported in the media, and we tell her not to pay attention to it because some of the items that are reported in the media are simply just not true. It made reference to a soundproof room. Um, I've visited the house on a couple of occasions. I can assure you there's no soundproof room in their house. Um, there's also reference of a strange doll that was there. It's a collectible doll that was Asa's. So there's items that are being reported in the media that are simply not true. And we told her, just pay attention to getting your own mental health back and being there for your children. Well, it's, I'm glad you're telling us that because we get our material from the police and to hear that there was a soundproof room. I think I'm learning now uh, through you that it was a ceilingless space with a safe door where he stored uh, his gun. So thank you for debunking. So let's let's talk a little bit about the things that are in the press, because the um, one of the attorneys for some of the victims, uh, John Ray, has been quite critical of your client, saying uh, that she's ignored the victims and that she herself is not a victim. Um, tell me how that's landed with Asa and the kids. I spent a couple hours with Asa and the kids today in my office, and, and I can assure you, Asa is not a suspect in this. Um, she has no involvement. She has no information relevant to this investigation. And if, if Rex is guilty of this, it's a complete double life that he's lived. Um, the DA and the prosecution and the police commissioner have come out and said Asa was not in the jurisdiction when these alleged crimes have happened. They could have said nothing about Asa during the course of this whole investigation to the media and in the bail application. They chose to put out their statement saying she was not involved, she's not an accomplice, she wasn't in the jurisdiction. Like I just said, they could have chose to leave her name out of it. So for them to make such an affirmative statement that she was not there, I think that their 22-month investigation revealed to them she's not an accomplice. She was not involved in this and had no relevant information to provide them. So for John Ray to state, state that is simply reckless. He's trying to keep himself relevant and in the media. His client, Shannon, is not alleged to have been involved with Rex. There's other facts involved with her, you know, homicide and that went on, went on that evening. So he's trying to keep himself relevant and tied into this case because it's gotten, getting a lot of media attention. Robert Macedonia, I'm always um, thankful that you will talk to us and help us sort of um, muddle through. You know, the police aren't saying a lot, and so some of that stuff can be very, um, you know, difficult to clear. So I appreciate you helping us to, to and, and, I, and I hope things are okay. I'd, I'd never like hearing that somebody's suffering through cancer treatments and is fearful that, you know, the insurance and, and is I do coming want to say, I hope that Asa sorts does, itself out. Yes. I do want to say, Asa does have sympathy for the victims. She's expressed that, and at, and at the appropriate time, Asa will come out and make a statement about, you know, her life, where she's at now, and her sympathy for the victims. Everybody has sympathy for the victims. Nobody should be a victim of homicide. Tell you what, she is welcome on this program uh, any moment, including in the next 31 minutes. So any time that you're able to um, convince her that it's a safe space, uh, she can come on, we can talk to her. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. Okay, I appreciate the time. Thank you. Robert Macedonio, uh, live with us tonight. I want to bring in Thomas Hargrove now, and the reason is because he's got a very unique background. He is a retired investigative journalist, founder of the nonprofit Murder Accountability Project. He has spent 
over a decade collecting data about unsolved murders um, and using an algorithm to find clusters of murders around the U.S. that may have been committed by serial killers. Thomas, thank you so much for, for being here. I want to get your read on the Long Island story because there's a lot of people coming out of the woodwork saying it's not just Rex Hewerman, the alleged Long Island serial killer responsible for all those bodies out there. What are your thoughts? Well, first, I thank you for having me. Uh, first, I do not know if Mr. Howerman is the guy. Um, that's not anything we can do with data. Uh, we do know that um, the cluster of probably connected homicides is much larger than has commonly been reported. Uh, there were about uh, 10 or so bodies of women recovered at Gilgo Beach in 2010 and 2013, um, we believe that the um, that the connected homicides on Long Island are actually much larger. Uh, that uh, if you go to our website at murderdata.org and you set the switches uh, to look at New York murders and then to look at murders in Nassau and Suffolk County, Long Island, and then you look at female murders. Um, you'll see um, a much larger cluster of homicides that look just like Gilgo Beach, statistically. And we believe that this cluster has a very low clearance rate, that these are overwhelmingly unsolved murders. And the reason for that is often that's because there is one or more active serial killers who evaded detection for, for quite a while. It's hard to believe. But, you know, that the, since we're talking numbers, I do want to ask you, the FBI has an estimate that there's somewhere between 25 and 50 active serial killers. But I think that your estimate really would blow the doors off of people. What, what do you suspect the serial killer number really is? Well, I'll have to give some definitions. Um, so we believe the FBI says that less than 1% of all homicides are serial. Uh, we can document as a, as a fact that at least 4% of all murders of women are known to be serial cases. Um, what is the actual number? Well, it's something north of 4%. But um, if 4% of murders are serial, uh, and we have 250,000-plus unsolved murders committed in the United States since uh, 1980, the math tells us that we're looking at something like 2,000 offenders, serial offenders, who have not been detected or arrested, to our knowledge. That is to say, um, more wow. than... Wow, big number. That, that's, that's more than the FBI says. They say 25 to 50, you say maybe 2,000. I'm well, almost out of time, but I've got to ask you about this. Strain... Sorry? Well, currently active is what the FBI number is about. Um, they, they recognize more over time. Right, right. So I wanted to ask you before I run out of time, and I really only have about 25 seconds left, uh, but this connection between 9-11 and the number of serial killers uh, and profilers who are out there now. Like 9-11 had a slight effect on America's ability to, to track them. Well, it changed the focus of law enforcement uh, to be anti-terrorism focused. Um, but at the same time, we should recognize that serial murder has declined. Uh, there are fewer serial killers now than there were 30 and 40 years ago during the so-called golden age. 
So if I have any news to give you, it's good news that serial murder is on the decline. The bad news is there's still plenty of them. Well, I will sleep better tonight, Thomas Harvgrove. Thank you for that. But I will invite you back because I find your work fascinating. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. And I won't sleep better tonight. I just said that. I really still worry about them. Thank you, Thomas. Um, It is a fascinating topic, especially since he uses data. Uh, Data, really strong, just straight to the computer screen, no noise, no drama. Okay, so uh, we were hoping that we would get a breakthrough, speaking of murder, on the Rachel Morin case, the one in Massachusetts, that lovely hiker, mom of five, who was brutally murdered out on the the hiking trail. She just went for a run, 6 o'clock on a Saturday night, and by Sunday... It became a mystery that seems unsolvable. But here's the thing. What do the investigators do when the murder happens in the wild? No cameras, no surveillance, no credit card machines, no license plate readers. What exactly do they do? You'll find out next. If a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? It's like that question that you ponder over Thanksgiving dinner all the time, right? But if a murder happens in the forest, uh, it doesn't leave the kind of evidence that that tree does. Because you can usually find out why the tree fell. Lightning, dead roots. But the murder that happened in the Maryland forest where Rachel Morin was found dead after going out for a run, this one doesn't have a lot of, like, typical investigative evidence that, you know, is left behind. Like, you're not going to see ring doorbell cams nearby. Probably no license plate readers on that hiking trail. Certainly phone pinging data might be tricky. All of the things that we rely on right now, I mean, that are the go-to, that stuff's going to be really hard. But there is one thing I think will be there, because if the description that we've gotten from someone who says he saw That's being disputed by cops. If the description of Rachel Marin is accurate, and that is that she was almost completely, no, fully completely naked, violently beaten, face and head almost unrecognizable. If you have that violent of a killing, I'll bet you left some DNA behind. I'll bet you shed some cells. I bet you shed some skin. You might even be bleeding on her. That's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that her killer, who was so violent with her, shed some of himself on her. And that's how we'll find him. Because otherwise, I don't know what they're going to use. Robin Dreek knows these things. He's a retired FBI special agent and a criminal profiler. He uh, ran the Bureau's counterintelligence behavioral analysis program. How do they catch a killer, Robin, when it happens out in the wild? Ashley, you kind of hit it a few minutes ago. Typically, what we do today is we collect all this digital data. But what I saw and and listened to Colonel Davis describing is they're going back to the old school model of doing investigation. That is, they are canvassing a lot of people. Um, Their website is up canvassing for tips. They're talking to people on the trails. They have a huge law enforcement presence out there. So if you can't get onto the Internet, they're just talking to a lot of people. So I think that's what they're doing. They're baselining the behaviors of that area over a period of time for people that frequent that area. And I think they're going to look for deviations from that first as well, as well as her digital footprint as well, because she was pretty social. So I think they're going to be correlating those two things together, her digital footprint, who she's interacted with, overlay that with who they're seeing and interacting with on the trails. 
So now give me your behavioral analysis read on the description. And I, again, the caveat is that the guy, his name is Michael Gabrzeski. He says he was with the party that found her body. He swears up and down she was naked and beaten terribly, her face and head almost unrecognizable. Cops are disputing that, but disputing his account, or at least that he has an account. Uh, they're not saying whether it's true or not. But what, in your behavioral analysis world, what does that tell you about this killer and how that might actually help us find him? Yeah, and I'll go with what the colonel said as well that overlays what the one person said, and that is it was violent. So violence means it's personal, most likely. And he's also put out a request for information of people that might have had a grudge against her. So, again, that's indicating that he thinks it's personal, as well as the other thing that struck me, what he said was he's canvassing people that have been on the trail, not just in that day or in that weekend, but even for the last two weeks which says that they might have a suspicion that this killer was out there for a period of time before he did the event, maybe planning the event or at least where they're going to put the body. Because think about this, too. Just because the body was found there doesn't mean she was killed there. So there's also other possibilities there as well. So we have a multiple things. But I think when we listen to the colonel speaking and the questions he's asking, it's giving us some clues as to what they're thinking. That is, it's personal this person might have staked out the place where they're going to put the body and it was definitely violent. Um, so those, those are the facts that he shared with us anyway. I got 10 seconds left. It's day 10 since the murder. Should we be concerned about the fact that they seem stumped? I don't think it's going to go cold on us yet because we have a lot of people yet to interview. The, the thing we will lose is memory because when we don't have the digital side, we start losing yeah. our memory and, and it'll, you have false memory start taking place of some of the people that were there. Robin Dreek, uh, what a joy. I just I, I wish that I lived in your world because it is so fascinating. Thank you for shedding your wisdom. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll have you back. Always, Lashley. Thank you. All right, so coming up after the break, this is a real live Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. If it's true, if it's true. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't even believe I'm telling you that the husband is a dentist and um, deacon in the church and the wife is like the choir director in the church and they have six beautiful children and police say he poisoned her so that he could be with his new girlfriend. Seriously. It's hard to believe until you hear some of the details, which you are going to hear next. Do not miss this. If you're going to poison your spouse, you might not want to order the cyanide to your office because your coworker might see it and call the police. Might not want to order the arsenic to your house because that can end up in your murder trial. <laughs> the reason I say those things is because that is exactly what Dr. James Craig might be thinking if he is indeed the killer of his wife of 23 years, Angela Craig. Uh, the police say he had another lady on the side, uh, an orthodontist in Texas, that he just met and was sweet on. So out had the wife had to go. Six kids. Six adult kids. He's an elder in the church. He's the choir director in the church. And now he's wearing prison orange. Caitlin Becker is the reporter for the Daily Mail who tells this story better than anybody. This is in Aurora, Colorado, uh, Caitlin. 
And I keep wondering, is the motive here really the other woman? Is it the $3 million in life insurance that reportedly he had? Or is it that his wife was telling her sister that he was obsessed with porn and having multiple affairs or maybe a whole combo? It definitely could be an entire combo of these factors, Ashley. If you ask the other woman, she would tell you it had nothing to do with her and that they'd only been speaking and talking for three weeks before he had allegedly poisoned his wife to death. That said, during an email exchange, the other woman signed it, I love you, after just three weeks. So I don't know just how serious they were. But as you said, there's also multi-million dollar life insurance policies and out there. And Daily Mail has done some extensive reporting on the fact that he had gone through both personal and professional bankruptcy and was millions and millions of dollars in the hole. So he probably could have used that money. So, by the way, Daily Mail, uh, very kind to let us use your pictures. Thank you very much for that. I am super curious about the, uh, I'm always curious about what people do on the interwebs before they're accused of murder. And it turns out that the police say Dr. James Craig was searching how to make poison, how many grams of pure arsenic will kill a human, and this is my favorite, is arsenic detectable in autopsy? Seriously, Caitlin, the business that we're in, these smart, smart people with more degrees than a circle do the dumbest, dumbest things, if in fact he's guilty. Truly, Ashley. And in this particular case, it does seem like he allegedly tried to get around people potentially looking this up because according to police, he was using a burner email that was not connected to his home computer or his work computer or his phone. It was only connected to one other computer used in one office at his dental practice where he never should have been in looking things up. So it struck other employees as really odd as to why they found him sitting in the dark using this computer. And this burner email was used to look up allegedly all of these things and used to allegedly order the potassium cyanide that ultimately killed this woman. And there are email exchanges back and forth as to why he needed it, because actually you can't just buy potassium cyanide for no reason. According to these emails, he apparently was doing a cranial reconstruction that was experimental. And if it was successful, it was going in an NIH paper. I mean, the lengths that were gone to, according to police, for this alleged crime are extensive. Well, then, and I've only got a couple seconds left, but she had said to her sister that he tried to poison her apparently years ago. So it wasn't as though uh, she wasn't aware something was hinky. Absolutely. Not only did he allegedly try to poison her five or six years ago, but when she started having symptoms, his wife, Angela, there are text messages contained in these police documents where he says, I don't think you're poisoned considering our history. I'm paraphrasing here, but considering our history, please know I didn't poison you. That, needless to say, does not seem to be the case if we're to believe prosecutors here. But the fact that you'd even have to go and say you're not feeling well, it probably wasn't me. I didn't poison you. Probably won't sit well with a jury, ultimately. No, it won't. And I'm sure those six adult children will probably have a great effect on a jury as well. It's just a dressing as hell to see that that, you know, can go so sideways. Poor Angela. Um, hey, Caitlin Becker, thank you. I, I haven't seen you in a while, so I'm really glad to see you, and you better come on again soon. I will. Caitlin Becker and the Daily Mail. Um, great photos. We're very, very thankful for that. Okay, so the driverless cars, 
They've been really, really controversial, right? You see all these crazy videos of the crashes, and you can't really just get one and go and like go to sleep. They're they're still controversial. But can I just tell you, the controversy hasn't even begun because what you're about to find out is happening in the backseat of driverless taxis. Let's just say bounce a bow now. That's up next. you'll never guess what all the cool kids are doing these days. (laughs) Let me just tell you that there's a newspaper in San Francisco that did a deep dive into something called cruise cars. That's a a driverless taxi. It's very, very popular in San Francisco. And uh, they they researched confessions from people who ride in the backseat. And they're like, doing it. They're having sex in the backseat of these things, thinking there's no driver. But I've got news for you. If you're thinking that might be fun, they have actual surveillance. Everything's recorded, uh, the company says, (laughs) inside and outside the car. So maybe you're into that kind of thing. Anyway, I could use all sorts of puns, like if this, you know, van's a rock and don't come knocking, the shagging wagon. But instead, I will not use those puns. I will just let this one ride. (laughs) See you tomorrow. Cuomo's next. I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Tuesday. We're live. We are in the midst of multiple disasters. So let's get our bearings and get after it. First, we have to pay attention to what's happening in Hawaii. Yes, the fires are getting under.